Democracy is facing its toughest tests since World War II, and now more than ever, the need to be an engaged citizen is critical. This is why listeners just like you are subscribing to Democracy in Danger, hosted by Will Hitchcock and Siva and Nathan from the University of Virginia's Media Lab. Each week, Democracy in Danger features leading thinkers to discuss serious threats to government by the people, from the dark web and media disinformation to climate change, economic inequality, and violent extremism. In a recent season two interview, they sat down with New York Times journalist Eduardo Porter to discuss a new idea of America, made from policies that address wealth and inequality across the social spectrum. Join hosts Will Hitchcock and Siva Vaidhai and Nathan as they dive deep with the biggest names of politics, government, and civil society, like upcoming guest Saraja Popovic, to discuss the democracy under Putin. So listen to Democracy in Danger to become a more informed, engaged citizen. To listen, search Democracy in Danger on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara ong your co-host and associate director here at JMU Civic. I'm Angelina Clapp, the post-grad democracy fellow at JMU Civic. We are delighted to have with us today, Dr. Charlie Willison. She is a National Institutes of Mental Health postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University Department of Healthcare Policy. Her work focuses on health policies that are designed and or delivered at the local level, including homelessness, housing, behavioral health policies, and disaster responses. We're gonna be talking with her today about her new book, Ungoverned and Out of Sight, which explores the public health and political crises of homelessness in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. I wonder if you can start by sharing what inspired your research into the politics and governance of homelessness in the United States. Thank you, and I love the way that you've phrased this question. I think, right, you can ask it two ways. You can talk about the public health issues related to homelessness, or you can talk about the politics. Uh, so I really appreciate your question. Um, there, are, there are a couple of different things that influenced my interest in this specifically. Uh, I think homelessness is a case of a really unique policy space where, and, and when I was looking into this, um, this was around the time when there were lots of discussions um, at their inception about the social determinants of health, health in all policies, and and thinking about how we can address these in different capacities. And housing was starting to get into the debates, but homelessness wasn't really. And thinking about this was also at the time when rates of homelessness uh, started to increase for the first time um, since since the Great Recession. And so I was looking into this and thinking about, okay, this is interesting as to why homelessness um, isn't being considered as heavily as some of these other um, policy interventions, given the severity of the implications for health and health disparities as a result of homelessness. Um, and, and similarly, homelessness, specifically chronic or long-term homelessness, is a really unique policy space where we have an overwhelming amount of evidence on the efficacy of the policies themselves. We have over four decades of evidence around the world, not just in the United States, about how successful housing first um, or access to housing from a barrier-free approach 
is. Um, and we know um, to date, based on all these different randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews and things like this, that it is the most effective way to end chronic homelessness. So I was really curious in thinking about, wow, if we're looking at different policy levers to address the social determinants of health, to think about health in all policies, why is homelessness, why are solutions to chronic homelessness excluded from this? Um, and then it's, relatedly, there was a similar question um, just in most of the research on homelessness uh, focuses on the health outcomes um, and hasn't really looked at why we get different approaches in different places. Um, and one piece of uh, research that did come out of this space is that the number of supportive housing units um, in municipalities uh, in the United States is not correlated with the rates of homelessness. So this was pretty indicative to me that something else is going on. I'm sure as most of the listeners um, know or wouldn't be surprised to hear that there's this sounds like a political problem, likely an implementation problem. In your new book, Ungoverned and Out of Sight, you argue that homelessness is a public health problem. Can you speak to how the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated America's homelessness crisis? This is such an important question, and I'm sure that it is something that is very, uh, that's on everyone's minds right now. Um, I'll talk about a couple of different things. Um, first, the pandemic has obviously directly increased rates of homelessness um, as a result of the economic stress of the pandemic. We know that rates of evictions have increased substantially, even despite eviction protections. Um, job loss is directly related to homelessness and housing insecurity. The primary cause of homelessness is economic. Um, so when we're thinking about these different things, we know that the pandemic is putting people in a state of housing, it's putting many people in a state of housing insecurity, uh, which puts people at great risk of, of homelessness. So there's that on, on face value just in terms of the rates of homelessness. Um, but the, the pandemic has also really shifted the way we approach solutions to homelessness and the way that these systems function too, which I think is, is really important. Um, and there are a couple of different ways that this has changed. Um, first is we, we tend to put an emphasis on these acute short-term solutions um, through uh, temporary housing and, and shelters, um, which most of which are a congregate setting. As we know, with the ways in which COVID-19 spreads and spreading through the air um, in close proximity to lots of other individuals, congregate settings don't work anymore. Um, so uh, now in many cities across the United States, homelessness is becoming very visible in a way that it wasn't in many communities for years um, because the shelters can't function anymore. Um, and so we've seen an increase um, in street homelessness or unsheltered homelessness. Um, I believe in the most recent point in time count from the federal government, that was either a seven, I think it was a 7% um, increase in, uh, uh, in people sleeping outdoors. Um, so this has really changed. And this has also then changed, right, the way that we uh, get services to people and interact with these systems um, if people aren't all coming to one place. The other thing that has uh, changed a little bit is with the financial constraints of the pandemic um, and the really limited federal response we saw um, under the Trump administration in terms of resources to support state and local efforts. State and local governments have similarly been more constrained in their ability to respond to other social problems, homelessness included. So this has just put a lot of pressure and constraints on these already really constrained systems. Um, something that I will flag um, in some current research that I'm doing is 
there may be some surprising opportunities for solutions to homelessness um, in the pandemic, despite all of these really bad things that are going on. Um, in, a, in a recent survey that I've done, we found that about 50% of the local uh, governance systems for homelessness have actually now um, experienced increased coordination um, or at least outreach from their local governments in ways that they had never experienced before as a result of the fact that now homelessness is out in the open and it's very visible again in these communities where it previously wasn't. So you mentioned that, you've already mentioned that we know from more than four decades of research in best practices and policies that the housing first is the best strategy. Um, And yet homelessness continues to increase nationally and reached crisis levels in the United States. Um, In your book, you, you trace the role of strategic decentralization and the delegation of homeless policy government governance um, and how it's created fragmented systems. I wonder if you can talk about how this has made it challenging to address homelessness in the United States. Um, So, yes, so absolutely. So the, the two main issues that I find in my research in the book are issues related to decentralization um, and, and issues related to fragmentation. And both of these things play out in different ways, both constraining homeless policy decision-making um, upstream, and uh, in, again, in terms of the decision-making processes, agenda setting and what policies may actually get pursued or um, get en- enacted, <clears throat> and then also downstream on the implementation side. So once you do get a policy, or if, if you do get a policy, what does that mean for the degree to which the policy can function successfully and be fully implemented um, in, the, in the locality or in the local jurisdiction? So I'll talk first briefly just about um, decentralization. Uh, so there are two ways in which uh, decentralization, and here just as a qualifying factor, when I'm talking about decentralization in this context, it's different from the ways in which we normally think about decentralization uh, across other policy spaces. So this is, um, or I, I'm I categorize decentralization and homeless policy as a form of the the delegated state or the submerged state or the hidden welfare state. You can pick your term, um, but really the the trend that we've seen since the 1980s to shift social services that are paid through government but designed and delivered by non-governmental actors. So this is really key here where decentralization isn't just referring to, you know, state or local government or subnational government. It's referring to non-governmental entities specifically, and in the the case of homeless policy, really low-resourced non-governmental entities. So the way that decentralization has kind of changed the game and and put in a a lot of barriers to to policymaking around homeless policy um, is is first in just representation and participation in these debates, Um, and uh, and then secondly, or I guess there are three, authority are the ability to actually carry out policies and finally capacity. And I think a good way to think about this is um, if you have uh, an entity that is responsible for, you know, millions of dollars of, of federal funding, um, but that that may not be enough to cover all of the social services they're providing. Um, it may not be enough to budget for staff. Um, and if that entity, um, you know, is is not a part of local government. They're really constrained in the the things that they can do. So they may not. They don't have regulatory capacity. They don't have statutory authority. They can't tax to get different revenue sources. Um, and they may not even be invited to municipal meetings. So when different issues about homelessness are being debated at the local level, 
if they don't have a seat at the table, they don't get a say in what's going on locally. So this plays out in, in really big ways and really significant ways for what policies are being considered. Um, and then on the fragmentation part, <clears throat> if, if municipalities um, uh, do actually integrate homeless policy uh, into, into local government. So it's not fully decentralized. It's not a part of the delegated state anymore, but it, it sits in local government and we kind of do away with these authority and capacity issues. You know, now they can, they can regulate and, you know, they can tax if they, if there's political um, will to do that or interest. Um, but this, this fragmentation, which um, is, is related to this historic uh, decentralization again by these entities really not having a, a voice at the table, not being included. Um, where I see uh, essentially competing policies across different spaces, primarily by groups that have historically had a much bigger voice in the debates. And so um, this includes um, really either misaligned or competing policies pursued by economic elites, um, where people with a lot of economic power, we can think of um, wealthy homeowners um, and, and businesses and organized business associations um, pursue uh, really, really strategically um, and organizationally opposing uh, any type of shelter construction, but also low income housing and permanent supportive housing solutions um, and being really the only or the primary voices at the table in those debates. Um, and then pursuing reactionary policing policies as an informal process, but through multiple channels. So really, really uh, high participation among economic elites in, in this form specifically. Um, to which actually which directly conflict with uh, supportive housing policy. So part of what you explore um, through the through decentralization and the submerged state um, is the rise of continuums of care, the rise of the continuums of care system. I'm not sure that most people have heard of continuums of care. So I wonder if you can explain the continuums of care system and the role that that it plays in setting the agenda on how homelessness is addressed at the local level, and then you know their role in in determining how funding is used and what is prioritized and how homeless programming is implemented. Thank you for asking about the continuums of care. Uh, I think it's so important for people to know who they are and what they do. And again, I think it's very illustrative of how homeless policy has been omitted from broader debates in public policy and public health policy in the United States by the fact that we don't even know who these entities are and most people don't know what they do, right? We can't imagine that this this wouldn't happen in healthcare, you know, if we didn't know um, who we really didn't know about Medicaid. Um, and, but this is a system that has a lot of responsibility um, and, and for a really critically important and persistent problem. Um, but it's, uh, it's very, very opaque. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you first what the continuums of care are. Uh, so this is a program that um, was developed in the 1990s um, out as a result or following from the McKinney-Vento Act, which is the only federal law that we have on the books um, related to homeless policy specifically. So this provides funding. Um, now it's called the Hearth Act. To, uh, to ameliorate homelessness in local jurisdictions. Um, but the way that these entities, uh, their, their policy responses locally are structured um, is entities uh, or arrangements, different, very different arrangements of non-governmental actors, um, primarily organized uh, 
around local jurisdictions get together. There's a lead agency um, and then a stakeholder body that can be comprised of any anyone um, varying from homeless shelters to hospitals to police departments to schools. It's a very, very broad array of organizations. The majority of continuums of care are comprised of um, and led by non-governmental um, or non-profit entities. So we can just really think about nonprofit social services and shelters. Um, and there, and my research finds that um, about forty percent or less of continuums of care are actually embedded in municipal government. Or um, in the book, I talk about um, how only forty percent uh, of municipal governments have local supportive housing policies. So then, when we're thinking about who is actually responsible for these activities, um, the majority of it falls on these non-governmental entities. Um, so I can talk through a little bit about the way that the COCs work uh, and what they do. So first, when you're thinking about um, uh, agenda setting, um, such such an important question. So the ways in which the continuums of care may have an influence on agenda setting uh, really at the local level <clears throat> really depends on the degree, the degree to which they are involved uh, in local government, formally or informally. Uh, and this is very different across the United States. Some, or again, <clears throat> less than 40% of continuums of care. Um, in some new research I'm doing, uh, my, the estimate is about only 33% of continuums of care are embedded in municipal government. So if they if they are um, right, they have a, a bigger say in agenda setting. Um, they have they have a seat at the table. They can be involved in those in those processes um, and be involved specifically in agenda setting. Um, the other arrangements vary pretty extensively from no contact with municipal government um, and a lot of gatekeeping by municipal government to keep continuous of care out of the debates to some engagement depending on lots of different factors. And so I think there's a spectrum of informal coordination, um, and that can change over time. It can, again, change on the salience, depending on the salience of homelessness that we've seen during the pandemic. Um, but that those degrees of coordination will affect the extent to which the continuums of care can affect local decision-making and agenda setting um, for homeless policy and housing policy. Um, continuum of care funding uh, depends also a lot on these local relations with uh, government um, and other stakeholders um, and related to the political mobilization around homelessness in the local jurisdiction. So the continuums of care uh, apply for and receive federal funding to ameliorate homelessness in their jurisdictions. Um, the, that is dependent on you know, the rates of homelessness in their area. It's also conditional on how long the COC has been in existence lots of different factors, but in many cases, the federal funding uh, is insufficient to cover the costs of the programming on the ground. So again, this is where capacity and decentralization really matters, because if the continuums of care aren't embedded in local government, so they don't have authority to generate revenue or advocate uh, for themselves um, to get other revenue streams governmentally or otherwise, and then they can be really constrained in the resources that are available to them to carry out the policies, regardless of authority. Um, and then uh, I think it's a. It, I was. It's great that you also asked about priorities of the continuums of care. Um, so these two, right? They're shaped also to the extent to which they get to participate um, and and also hear from different parties and different entities locally, um, but. 
the high level priorities are determined by the federal government uh, in these applications for federal funding. So there are big policy areas, um, actually prevention. I don't, I'm not sure if this has changed for 2021, um, but uh, during the previous administration, prevention of homelessness was not a funding priority. Um, but uh, moving towards housing first strategies, uh, has been uh, a priority for funding since 2015. Um, and the continuums of care are also required to reduce the criminalization or uh, policing of homelessness um, to interrupt those cycles. Um, but again, when we're thinking about, okay, wow, this is this is such an important priority, but if they have absolutely no involvement with local government uh, and no authority, then that ends up becoming a pre-voluntary request with local police departments. Another issue you raise in your book is that persons experiencing homelessness, homelessness or at risk of homelessness are left out of policy and decision-making processes. In what ways can improving participatory equity improve policy decision and implementation? And also, how can decision-making bodies work to bring those at risk and people experiencing homelessness um, into those policies and decision-making processes? Thank you so much for that question. Um, so first, just touching on, you know, why why does this matter to have these groups engaged in the policy process? The, the simple answer is that if you have policymaking that only involves people who are not the recipients of that policy, excuse me, um, not only does that bias the policy process, but you're also at risk of getting policies that don't work successfully to their intended goals, right? If you don't have the people who are living through these policies and receiving the benefits of these policies um, involved in designing the policies, then you're likely to get policies that don't succeed to address those problems because you haven't looked at how those problems are affecting this group of people. And this is really persistent uh, in homeless policy debates where for many different reasons, obviously, there are challenges related to participation among people experiencing homelessness. And I think we definitely don't want to say that people need to participate and relive their traumas through participation, but thinking about ways in which we can just I mean, even, you know, increased participation, participation among low income groups, people at risk of homelessness, people who would like to participate, who have lived experience with homelessness or were formerly homeless. Um, and there are different ways that different organizations have done this. And it's so essential to, again, reducing bias um, in, in policy processes um, and improving democracy, uh, but then also improving the way that the policies are actually designed so that they function effectively. So what are different ways that decision-making bodies can work to bring in at-risk uh, groups or persons with lived experience? Uh, I think there are lots of different ways that we can start to think about this. Um, one is, uh, so right now the continuums of care are required to uh, have a, a public comment uh, where be, basically they solicit public comment, but if no one comments, it doesn't matter. And so thinking about, okay, well, how can we, how can we incentivize the continuums of care uh, or, you know, the municipal governments, uh, if this is the institutional structure, to actually go out and 
you know, listen to people um, and, you know, not put the onus on these institutional bodies and not on uh, the, the citizens themselves. Uh, I think that's that's a really important factor to to consider is maybe to, to require consultation of at-risk groups by the continuums of care or by local government. And this matters especially for, for at-risk groups, right, because they face so many participation barriers. Um, and again, we don't want to, to, to burden constituencies, um, but we, we want their voice to be heard and we want to make sure the policies are designed effectively. So that's one thing to consider. A good model for this is the um, uh, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, um, which is a, a shelter in Massachusetts in Boston. Uh, they have their their board of trustees is I think fifty percent comprised of people with lived experience of homelessness, um, and so they you know they volunteered and they're very very happy to be engaged. And uh, the organization has said that this has improved the way that their organization works so much, and they're more effective able to do outreach and provide services because they know what works for this population because the population is involved in the decision making. Um, so this is just a, a model potentially that uh, continuums of care or local governments could, could use when they're thinking about their, their stakeholder bodies and their, the composition of their, their local boards um, or their continuum of care boards. Um, we can also offer multiple avenues of participation. Um, and then there are also some larger institutional reforms uh, that can be done. Um, Catherine Levine Einstein um, and colleagues uh, in their book, Neighborhood Defenders, um, which is talking about um, participatory inequity in housing policy and politics specifically. Um, they argue for zoning reforms. Um, so when we're thinking about a lot of the opposition or challenges that happen where economic elites, you know, businesses, uh, wealthy white homeowners um, are the primary participants um, in housing policy debates. And so at, when each, uh, when it, whenever a individual building, uh, when that has to be approved, if we change it to uh, zoning approvals, so we have policy debates over zoning for an entire area, as opposed to zoning uh, permitting for individual buildings, that that just gets rid or reduces some of the gatekeeping processes that happen. Um, so once something is zoned, for example, for housing, um, then the housing can just be constructed as opposed to holding up each individual unit. In addition to a novel data set you built to explore national trends, you also conducted case studies in San Francisco, California, Atlanta, Georgia, and Shreveport, Louisiana, to give us a more in-depth understanding at the municipal level of the conditions under which supportive housing policies might be implemented. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you learned from these three cities and tell us what you know about the political factors that contribute to whether evidence-based housing policies are adopted and implemented. So there are two things that I will touch on. Um, first is that uh, the adoption of evidence-based policy depends primarily on decentralization or here the issues of authority and capacity. So do we have the, the political authority to, to, you know, to, to regulate these policies, to approve them uh, at the municipal level, and then do we have the funding uh, to, to do so? Um, and then the policy implementation for evidence-based policy depends more on participatory inequity, social construction of people experiencing homelessness um, and policy alignment across different actors that are involved in this uh, fragmented policy space. So here, state actors, um, local government, the consumers of care, and economic elites are the economically powerful. 
So I'll, I'll talk first about adoption. I think there's some really interesting lessons from Atlanta and San Francisco specifically around the importance of political mobilization and policy capacity in terms of getting municipal government on board to then embed homeless policy governance structures in local government and give that give them the authority to to design these policies and the capacity to carry them out on the ground. Um, so in in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta had a fully delegated decentralized um, continuum of care uh, until uh, the tw- the 2010s, the early 2010s, um, and there was an opportunity where a larger continuum of care that Atlanta was a part of uh, restructured, and so Atlanta separated from a regional jurisdiction of continuums of care. Um, but when this happened. Uh, this happened at the tail end of a decade of investment in policy capacity to address homelessness by the city of Atlanta specifically. So political actors, um, mayors had been uh, really active and advocating for uh, homelessness to address homelessness in the city um, since uh, the early 2000s. Um, And along with that, despite not being able to leverage any municipal funds, they went out um, and built a lot of fiscal policy capacity um, through philanthropy. Um, And this is also just the way that a lot of policies are, social policies are funded in Atlanta, so it's specific to this context. But so when this policy window opened uh, in, in 2012 or 2013 with this restructuring, Atlanta had this big base of policy capacity set up. So they were like, oh, you know, if should we have this exist in the municipal government or should we keep it in a decentralized fashion, but because they had this pre-existing capacity and pre-existing political mobilization, uh, they had the opportunity, they had the ability um, to, to embed the continuum of care in municipal government because of these pre-existing investments. Um, so this is something that, that I just want to flag. So when we're thinking about why does evidence-based policy happen, we need, we, um, you know, we need to be able to have these institutional structures in place so that the, uh, the entities, again, have the authority to design these policies and, and the funding to carry them out. But to do that, there needs to be these upstream investments in, in policy capacity. So it's a, it's a pretty long process. Based on your extensive quantitative and qualitative research, what recommendations do you have for policymakers to improve homeless policy governance systems? So great question. I think that my my two main recommendations for policymakers to improve homeless governance systems um, come in these these two big categories that I've been talking about. So addressing issues of authority and capacity um, related to the decentralization uh, of homeless policy. And then secondly, addressing issues of policy fragmentation or these conflicting or competing or misaligned policies that different actors pursue. Um, And really, policymakers, they need to take a look at what's going on in their jurisdiction. They need to first ask, how are these policies currently structured? What are the institutional arrangements? Does the continuum of care have a voice in local decision making? If they don't, thinking about ways that uh, these governance structures can be restructured uh, formally or informally to improve participation um, and then uh, amend some of these issues of authority and then also the issues of capacity, right, to open up more funding streams um, for for these policy spaces uh, in the first place. 
And then at, after that, once, once these governance structures get the authority to actually carry out their tasks to, you know, to pass local statutes, to, to regulate, to be involved in decision making, um, to, to have these fiscal resources available to them, uh, then there are these other issues. And so we can also say, you know, if, if policymakers are taking a look at their existing governance structures and the continuum of care is embedded in local government, then they should take a look at, well, what's going on? Are evidence-based policies happening um, in my jurisdiction? What other policies are happening? Uh, so thinking a lot about policing, can think about um, state policies that might not be working as effectively as they can be. In the book, I talk a lot about Medicaid um, or access to insurance for low-income individuals, which has really good intentions, but as a result of state policies uh, not involving local governments, not involving continuous of care um, in the design of uh, Medicaid benefits that are targeting people experiencing homelessness, then this is an example, right, where why does it matter if target populations are involved? Then there are a lot of administrative burdens that are uh, created uh, that are in conflict with the realities of homelessness. So those are the two things that I would recommend is taking a look at the current institutional structures, what's going on in their jurisdiction, um, first addressing issues of authority and capacity, and then looking at these fragmented or competing policy spaces and thinking about how we can improve coordination across them to reduce that policy conflict. Charlie Willison, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters and talking about your new book, Ungoverned and Out of Sight. We asked this question of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? This is such a great question. Thank you so much for asking this question to everyone who comes on the podcast. I will take the local for this one since I'm talking about local politics. Uh, right, so we have seen movement. Well, I mean, historically in the United States, we have a big persistent issue with undemocratic characteristics of subnational politics. Uh, so I think there are lots of different ways that we can think about different reforms to improve democracy and democratic engagement um, from a subnational level. We can uh, reform um, uh, voting rights laws, right? Roll back restriction, restrictions, you know, like what's happening in Georgia. Um, and, and then also obviously the, the repercussions of uh, Citizens United um, from, from the Supreme Court ruling from, from 2012. So these are really big things that had really substantial implications um, for civic engagement uh, at, at the subnational level. Um, we can talk a lot about gerrymandering and redistricting um, and creating independent commissions uh, to oversee these processes. And then, and then obviously when we're thinking about policy participation, thinking about the, the broad participatory inequities that exist uh, in, in local politics regarding civic engagement um, across a, a wide spectrum um, of, of local issues um, uh, in, in different classes of policy.